Jesus is amazing to consider that while we sing to you today and view you through a glass darkly, that one day all of this will give way to face to face. How we long for that day. We cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. In the meantime, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us. We thank you for your grace, Lord, in our life. Thank you for your grace even in this last week. We thank you for your very firm grip upon our lives. Thank you for the depth of your commitment to your relationship with us. And we thank you again tonight for the privilege of being able to turn to your Bible and to study this book of Jeremiah where millions and millions of people through the ages have sat and read it, Lord, and sought to hear your voice through it. And we come with that same attitude this evening and pray that you would anoint us to learn your word, anoint us to be able to hear your voice through it. We know it's always speaking, but we ask that you would use it to speak to the specifics of our life, Lord, and the specifics of our relationship with you tonight. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Jeremiah chapter 26 this evening, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently in the book of Jeremiah. If you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll, you'll be much more comfortable with one. It'll be advantageous to have a Bible and just flag down one of these guys that are walking up the aisle right now with Bibles, and they'll put one in your hands. It'll be marked to our passage, and, and then you can follow along this evening. And then if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Well, good to see you tonight. I don't know, it's Father's Day, you know, and a little warm out there, hmm? Did anybody warn you that this was coming? I don't know. I just, you wake up in the morning and it's 80 degrees. What kind of a, what kind of a state is this? You know, there's an old saying about the weather. The old saying is that the weather always gives you something to talk about, doesn't it? How many of you have not talked about the weather in the last 24 hours? Just a show of hands if you have not said something about the weather. See, look, at we're already proving point after point here, even as we, even before we get to the Word of God tonight. Well, it's good to see you. Good to have you here tonight. Chapter 26. Chapter 26 is a, a further record uh, surrounding a sermon that Jeremiah preached uh, to uh, in Jerusalem and to the southern kingdom of Judah as it's recorded uh, originally in chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah. And in chapter 7, the main focus there is uh, upon the message itself. And the message that Jeremiah declared to Judah in Jerusalem in the area of the temple was, do not trust in the temple itself. Don't trust in your religious activity. Don't trust in all of your priests and all of the rituals that you're going through unless all of those things are coupled with an obedient life to God's Word, obeying His commandments, then all of it is useless. And that's the message that God uh, delivered uh, to them. And uh, they wrongly assumed, it, uh, both then and, and then here as it's recorded, they wrongly assumed that Jerusalem would never be taken uh, because God would never allow Jerusalem to be destroyed because it was the location uh, of the temple. And so in chapter 26 here, uh, Jeremiah, again, he's not chronological. He deals with uh, subjects in, uh, in the book, and he focuses on the reaction to that message. And uh, it, it reveals to us here, as we'll study it tonight, uh, how dangerous it was for Jeremiah to deliver the message that he delivered, not to the Philistines, not to the pagans, not to the Ammonites or the Amorites, his life was in danger in delivering the Word of God to the children of Israel, to the children of uh, Judah. And boy, the courage that was required in order to uh, do it. And we get a glimpse of that here in this chapter. He would really have to hold on to God's promise that God gave to him when God commissioned him that, listen, you speak for me 
and I'm going to make you strong in front of them, and then I'll protect you against whatever repercussions they might want to bring uh, against you. And so in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, and here is the message that uh, was delivered, thus says the Lord, as God instructs Jeremiah, stand in the court of the Lord's house, that is the temple, and speak to all of the cities of Judah. In other words, people came to worship the Lord at the temple from all of the various cities throughout Judah. They were represented in the crowd that would be there that day. All of them who come to worship in the Lord's house. And not only was he to speak, but God told him and exhorted him that he was to speak all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Now, you would think that God would, need, would not need to say that to Jeremiah. It would be, give him the prophecy, and he's going to deliver all of it. But God told him, I want you to speak all of it. I don't want you to even leave out a single word that I give to you to speak. Why would God speak that to Jeremiah except that it was a temptation? And God wanted to make sure that uh, he didn't fall prey to that temptation. Jeremiah, for sure, when he begins to speak this message from God, he has a realization that this is not going to be well received uh, by the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God gives him the warning here not to diminish a word. And he gives the reasons why uh, for this uh, warning. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning, number one, the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. So God delivers this message through Jeremiah in order to get the people to, conf to confront their sin and then repent of their sin. I think it's important as we continue to study the book of Jeremiah where I think the average person, when you would talk to them and say, what is the theme of uh, Jeremiah? And we'd say, well, the theme of it is judgment. I mean, it's just one message of judgment after another. And that is true, but it isn't true in a central sense. At its core, the book of Jeremiah is a book of grace. It is a warning of judgment, but a call on top of it and an and and invitation to repent of sin so that God could turn away from His uh, judgment. And so the message was to be given uh, with the idea that someone, everyone perhaps, will listen and will repent. When he speaks in verse 2 to Jeremiah and tells him that he's to speak all of the words and not diminish a word, we think to ourselves, well, what in the world would cause Jeremiah to be, even be tempted not to de declare all of the word, every single word of it? And uh, God reveals to us here in verse, th uh, verse 3, and it's the same things that tempt us to close our mouths today. As individual Christians, it's the same thing, the same temptation that every pastor, every teacher of the Word of God faces. And here, uh, God speaks of His prophecy that He's declaring. It's a prophecy that involves calamity, it involves judgment, and then it is in a, a confronting the people with the evil of their doings. And there is tremendous pressure on anyone who ministers the Word of God. You take it in your own life. When you uh, talk with family members or friends or other conversations and you talk about uh, the Bible, you talk about uh, the Lord, talking about people that aren't familiar with the Bible, and uh, what are the things that they object to, first of all? They object to being called sinners, that God would assess us as sinners, even though it prepares us for a message of salvation. Uh, they don't like the fact that God judges sin and that God will ultimately judge each individual person and judge the world. These are things that people don't like to hear even today. 
And when you're in those conversations with people, you feel that pressure to only represent God as kind of the great uh, Pillsbury doughboy in the sky. He's all love. It's all, we all get there in the end. Don't worry about uh, abortion. Don't worry about, uh, you know, redefining marriage and all of these kind of things. We'll stay away from all of that, and we'll just try and encourage them into the kingdom of God. And uh, we're under the same temptation. But the same thing that you feel, every pastor feels, every teacher of the Word of God feels from behind the pulpit or behind uh, the lectern. I think that sometimes uh, people can look and say, well, of course, that's what they're called to do. It's what they do for a living. I mean, they just get up there and do that. But there is a, there's a price that's paid. There's a temptation related to all of it. And to back away from the hard things that need to be spoken uh, to a people to prepare them for God's offer of grace. And that's why it's important to pray uh, for leaders, pray for people like me, pray for people that you listen to online in the course of the week that teach the Word of God, or you hear them on the radio. Everybody faces the same temptation to tamp it down. And especially the more this kind of thing, the speaking of God's judgment or speaking about sin and these kind of things, uh, that group of people, by virtue of pressure, becomes a smaller and smaller group. Then the pressure gets felt uh, even more. I do think that if, if the battle is lost on the individual level, uh, for each of us as Christians in the relationships in our life where we look and we say, all right, I'm not going to speak, I'm not going to talk about His judgment, I'm not going to talk about His righteousness, I'm not going to talk about sin, I'm not going to talk about the need for people to be saved, I'm just not going to talk about any of that stuff anymore. If the average Christian moves away from that, now everything has to be spoken in love, but if the average Christian moves away from that, and then only teachers and leaders are the ones that are doing that, and they don't even at that point not only have the support of the world, which we can never expect, but now we no longer have the support of Christians or the congregation, then we're doomed. We're doomed. So it isn't just leaders, but it's everyone. God has called all of us to properly represent the totality of God's message. Every single thing that God commands in His Word, the Bible uh, declares that the commandments of God are not burdensome. Nothing about it is burdensome. It may be difficult to hear because sometimes the truth is difficult to hear, but everything He speaks is with the intention of then leading us into something better and setting us free from the sin and the judgment that nips at all of our heels and will one day uh, overtake us. And so, here is the great temptation uh, that, you know, to, to grow silent concerning calamity and evil, concerning judgment or related to sin. And the Lord spoke to uh, Jeremiah, gave him then uh, after that warning in the hope of their repentance, the message that he was to deliver. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if, and so it's in their court, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you. They rose up early and in the morning, and I sent them out to you, but you have not heeded them then. And so here you have a classic if-then statement in the Bible, then I will make this house, speaking of the temple where he was preaching this, I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city, Jerusalem, a curse to all of the nations of the earth. God says, in other words, when, by the time I judge you and if you force me into this place, I will wipe out Jerusalem so completely, I will allow that to happen by the Babylonians that when the surrounding nations see how great the devastation is and they want to curse somebody in their country for having done them wrong or stolen from them or lied to them or sinned against them, that they'll say, well, may God wipe you out in the same way that Jerusalem was wiped out. In other words, again, the judgment would become a curse, a means of pronouncing a curse upon another person. The judgment would become uh, very, very uh, uh, well known. 
Now, when he declares that he's going to make this temple uh, like Shiloh, Shiloh was the first site of Jewish worship when the children of Israel came into the promised land. And ultimately, it was abandoned as a worship site when the temple was, or the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines, as is recorded in the historic, historical books. And then Shiloh gets lost. At the time that Jeremiah declares this to the audience in Jerusalem, Shiloh is a ruin. And so he is declaring that the temple will be destroyed and Jerusalem will be, be reduced to a uh, ruin. And so the priests and the prophets and all of the people, they heard uh, Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. They got the message loud and clear. Not enough to hear the message, but to properly respond to it. Now, here's their response. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to the people that the priests and the prophets and all of the people, they seized him at him saying, you will surely die. So just like with Paul, as we've been looking on Sunday morning in Acts, they grab him with the intention of killing him now. And so, you know, you, you want to be a prophet? You want, you want to give the prophecy? So this is, uh, they, they said, that's it. We're done listening to this guy. We're done having you say what you're saying. They are going to now take it into their hands, and they're going to kill Jeremiah. Again, it's not the Philistines. It's not the Amorites or the Hittites or the Hivites. We're talking about the priests and the prophets in the city of Jerusalem are going to kill Jeremiah for calling on the people to repent of their sin. Wow! I mean, religious people are, can be very, very dangerous people true, to the true cause uh, of God, not just in the New Testament related to Jesus, but in the Old Testament uh, as well. And again, as we've seen in the mornings, there is no mob more ruthless than a religious mob. De Jeremiah is in real physical danger at this point in time. It actually looks like God's promise to protect him looks a little iffy at the moment. And, uh, it, you know, if, it, if they were doing odds in Vegas or whatever it might be, I don't know how many people would put a shekel on uh, Jeremiah at this point. But while the promise looked iffy, God is going to come in and keep his promise to Jeremiah. And I think uh, for you tonight, any of us that are sitting here this evening, where God has given you a promise related to the situation that you're in, and that promise looks very much in jeopardy because of the circumstances you find yourself in. Uh, his promises are never iffy. They're always yea and amen, and God will keep His promise uh, to you. And when the princes of Judah, so here you have the secular, the, the uh, government leaders of Judah, they heard about this commotion that's going on. Uh, their uh, area was very close to the temple. Word came to them that they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, the temple, and then they sat down at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Now, when you would rule over an issue in that culture in those days, if you were uh, uh, a priest or you were a prophet or you were certainly if you were a ruler or an elder within a city and you were going to make a judgment, you would always do it in the gates of the city uh, where all of the coming and going is going on. You would sit down and then the case would be heard and you would judge it. So when they go to the gate, it's with the idea that something is, requires our judgment here and we're going to uh, sit in judgment of what it is that's happening here. And then the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all of the people saying, this man deserves to die. This is terrible because you have the priests and the prophets who are less spiritual than the secular leaders within uh, the country. This man deserves to die, and then they give the reason, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. Now, this is like watching television news uh, today, 
where the stories come on and whether you're watching a conservative station or you're watching a liberal station or whatever it might be, you're never going to get the whole truth. Uh, you're going to get their slant. You're going to get their version. They can't, they can't make every news show be 16 hours long and give you the whole details surrounding every issue they're dealing with. And so they come in with a very edited version of what is happening here, and it has no basis in, in reality in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of, you know, what uh, Jeremiah has done. They raise the accusation that Jeremiah has prophesied against this city. That's not at all what Jeremiah was saying in, the, in its essence. Jeremiah, the message was he was calling them to repent of their sin. That was the message, and they leave that completely out, and to repent of their sins so they might avert the judgment that was coming. What these guys do, and don't think they don't know what they're doing, people are just as smart in those days as they are today. They may not have known as much as we know because of all of our uh, connections today, but these are smart people. Everybody knows how to massage a message and put forth the, uh, their best foot foot forward. And so that's what they do. And what they do is, instead of saying, we condemn him, he is worthy of death because he is confronting us with our sin, they know that will never fly. So what do they do? They said, he's attacked this city. Now they make it a matter of Jeremiah's patriotism to Judah. And now here is a guy that is speaking against the city, and so the charge, we want to get rid of him. We can't get rid of him as a prophet by, uh, you know, calling for his death because he's calling us to repent of our sin, and so we've got to find something. We're going to uh, accuse him of treason or sedition uh, or being unpatriotic. And so that's the charge that uh, they bring uh, against, uh, against Jeremiah. It's an interesting thing that I watch today, and maybe you notice it too, maybe you don't, but uh, this whole uh, manipulation of uh, patriotism today in our current environment in the United States of America, and I don't want to be misunderstood concerning this, so I'll, I'll preface it by saying I am absolutely, you may equal me in this room, but I don't think you'll excel me. I am a law and order guy uh, all the way that a person can be. I am pro-law enforcement, obviously within the perimeters that are, are important related to that. I'm pro-military. I am all of those uh, kind of things. But today it's so easy when a person uh, might make a stand against something unrighteous related to legislation or related to our nation or whatever to then throw the, per the accusation that they're being unpatriotic. Everybody wants to be uh, patriotic because as a nation we are largely a patriotic uh, a nation. But I look at it and I think uh, things are getting a little squirrely and a little bit dangerous uh, to me today where, uh, where you would, you know, it's, it, it, it's flying around too easy where patriotism is being viewed in a very narrow sense and then unpatriot, being unpatriotic is being viewed in, a, in whatever grid a person is, is however they're looking at it. Our military and our law enforcement and our government and our nation is only as good as it is righteous. And if a nation ceases to be righteous and it ceases to be moral in terms of its stand, in terms of its uh, uh, foreign policy, in terms of its whatever, it may ultimately force a section of the population to stand up against that and to denounce it. And then the way the, the, uh, the ground is being laid today to then set a trap for them to be drowned out as being unpatriotic in, when, in a realm where patriotism is being viewed in a very uh, narrow and shallow kind of grid. And if anyone in the future will be the persons who will stand up against unrighteousness and uh, immoral government in the United States of America, it will end up being uh, Christians. 
It is never unpatriotic to speak for God uh, in a nation, though I think we're approaching a time in which that's what the potential we could be branded with, even as they attempt to brand Jeremiah with this. I think how this is viewed, how it's defined, it's very much an emotional issue in our nation today rather than something that is well thought out. And, uh, and I think it's dangerous where, uh, where it is, and I think it can become very dangerous uh, uh, when a nation heads where Judah headed, and then it will be the righteous who will be branded in this way. And then Jeremiah spoke to all of the princes and all of the people, saying, uh, here's this accusation, he's prophesied against the city, and he simply declared that the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city, and with all of the words that you have heard. He fills in the blank. This is not about patriotism. This is about righteousness. This is about God. And he is communicating to them what he's communicated throughout the book, and that is, if you think that I am your problem, then you haven't even begun to get a grasp on how severe your problem is. I am not your problem. God is your problem. I am merely speaking for him. And then he repeats the message. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then the Lord uh, will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. And then Jeremiah declared, as for me, here I am. I'm in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. He realizes his life is hanging in the balance at this moment. Again, it's one thing to read it on the page, put yourself in his place, and to realize that this thing could swing either way, and in five minutes, he's dead or you're dead. That's the situation that, that he's in. And so he said, listen, you do what seems good or prop, proper to you, uh, but then with the caveat, uh, but know for certain that if you put me to death, you will certainly bring innocent blood on yourself. In other words, you know I'm innocent of the charges that these men are bringing against me, and you will bring uh, innocent blood on this city and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to, uh, to you to speak these words in your hearing. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't back down. He doubles down uh, on the message, and there he makes his uh, stand, and uh, again, a work of the Spirit in his life to do that. And so the princes and all of the people then said to the priests and the prophets, here you have the priests and the prophets who should be the most spiritual within the nation. They're the ones that are having to be confronted by the princes, the secular rulers, and the people, and they declared, this man does not deserve to die. You haven't laid a case for his death here at all, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And then certain of the elders of the land, they rose up and they spoke to uh, all of the assembly of the people that were now gathered around at this trial, and they declared, uh, Micah of Moresheth uh, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And Micah spoke to all of the people of Judah. This is the Micah of the minor prophets. And he spoke to all of the people of Judah about a thousand years earlier, or a hundred years earlier rather than Jeremiah's time in the time of Isaiah. And, and uh, during the reign of, of King Hezekiah, a very godly king, and he pronounced upon uh, Israel, uh, Judah at that time, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion, speaking of Jerusalem, shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountains of the, uh, of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. So they're feeling some kind of um, heat here. You have secular leaders who are having to put religious leaders in their place, and they're not altogether confident that they're going to be able to do it, so they pull out a, a biblical basis for the fact that Jeremiah should not be put to death because of what he has spoken. And so here was the thing that Micah spoke to Hezekiah. They said, did Hezekiah, king of Judah and uh, all of Judah, ever put Micah to death for what he spoke? And they didn't. 
Did he not fear, that is, Hezekiah, fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor as a result of the message of Micah? Didn't the nation repent under this godly king, Hezekiah? And the Lord then relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them, but we are doing great evil against ourselves. And so the elders, they pose a simple question. Uh, Why in the world are we going to start killing prophets uh, now, a hundred years later, for telling us the same message that somebody declared a hundred years earlier and people repented, uh, listened to and repented and were saved as a result uh, of it? Then as we go into uh, verse uh, 20 here, uh, there's this uh, description of the death of a man by the name of Urijah. And uh, this isn't something that's spoken on that scene that Jeremiah is in the middle of right now. This is something that is added uh, to the text to give us a glimpse at a prophet by the name of Urijah who was prophesying at the time of Jeremiah. And uh, so we can kind of understand uh, what Jeremiah was in the middle of. Now, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all of the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not the only one prophesying in that day. And when Jehoiakim, the king, with all of his mighty men and all the princes, when they heard this man's prophecies, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah uh, heard this uh, death threat, understandably, he was afraid, and he fled, and he went to Egypt. And then Jehoiakim, the king, uh, sent men to Egypt, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and other men who went with him uh, to Egypt, and they brought Urijah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim, the king, who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people." And that's what, uh, that is what this king did to another prophet in Jeremiah's time. Probably this little uh, historical uh, tidbit is inserted here by the Holy Spirit in the passage to speak to us two things here. Uh, number one, for us to give us an appreciation for how dangerous the situation was that Jeremiah was in. They were killing prophets in those days for saying the very things that he was saying. It took tremendous courage to make the stand that Jeremiah did, and his life was in the hands of the Lord uh, every time that he did. I think another thing that's communicated here, and one of the reasons this is here, is because this is kind of a a refutation of the accusation against Jeremiah's patriotism or his loyalty to the southern kingdom of Judah. When Jeremiah prophesied against Judah, he never fled. He stayed in the land. He stayed in it through uh, the, the conquest by the Babylonians. He endured all of the hardship. And so this accusation against him that he wasn't a patriot, that he didn't care about Judah, none of that uh, stood up even in contrast to other prophets who fled Judah for their own safety, Jeremiah never did. And so the charge that was being made against Jeremiah of being unpatriotic uh, or uh, of sedition or treason, uh, it, it didn't stand. And the fact that he did not flee when things got hard, but that he stayed faithful to God's uh, call upon his life and, and where God had called him to was probably played a part in the fact that these kind of charges could be uh, deflected related to him and his life uh, spared. Nevertheless, the hand of uh, Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. Now, uh, Ahikim was a, a very uh, godly man who was a, a remnant of godly King Josiah's cabinet and his leadership. And so this man is here. He's hearing this case. He knows what godliness looks like. He knows uh, fully what, uh, you know, he, under Josiah, one of the great kings of Judah, he has an appreci- he, he had to have a godly heart or, or Josiah would not have put him in the position that, that he did. And so he sees what's going on here. He steps up and he uses his influence in this situation 
nation to then protect Jeremiah. And, and Jeremiah's life is spared. God uses uh, people in the way that He wants to in order to spare us and, and you know, so our lives will, uh, none of our lives will ever be cut short prior to the end uh, of our ministries, and it's time to go home to heaven. I think it does speak something important to us. Here you have a very emotional scene. It's a mob scene, and uh, nothing in terms of logic, nothing in terms of reason is in play here. It's all, let's kill Jeremiah because our lives will be a lot simpler if we can get uh, rid of this guy. And all of this thing is going on. And then it just takes one man who stands up in the middle of that situation, and he resists it. And when he resists it, the entire situation is deflated. And isn't it interesting how often you can be in a a situation, us, even today, whether in a family or in some kind of a discussion among friends or, or whatever it might be, and here's this discussion that's going on. It's becoming more and more emotional, more and more frenzied. It's getting more and more dangerous and so forth. And then uh, someone steps up and says, no, that's not right. This is what's the right thing to do. And, and immediately virtue is introduced into the situation and exposes the rest of it, and it's deflated. And there's a time for us to make stands in those kind of environments, people to do that for us as well, us to do that uh, for them. Sometimes we just let everything kind of go on and say, you know, I mean, you saw it, you saw how many people were doing this and the, the emotion, and the, I mean, what, 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 there was nothing I could say that would change it. You don't know until you say something. We don't know until we make a stand. And this stand of this wonderful man, Ahikam, uh, made a difference. Chapter 27. It's important in looking at chapter 27 to uh, understand a little bit of the background related to it, to understand what's happening here. The Babylon uh, conquered the, uh, Judah and Jerusalem three times. The first conquest occurred in 605 uh, B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he defeated uh, Egypt. His intent was not to come in and conquer Judah, but he defeated Egypt. And, and after defeating Egypt as a world power at the time, he decided, while I'm in the neighborhood, I'll just go ahead and take care of Judah at the same time. And, and he conquered uh, Judah uh, at that time, and Judah became a vassal state to Babylon and was forced to pay uh, tribute and taxes to uh, Babylon. The Old Pro Testament prophet Daniel was taken captive in that first conquest of, of Judah and Jerusalem, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, many others as well. Again, Babylon came in and stripped away uh, among the best of the people in the city in order to further its, its kingdom. The second conquest occurred in a few years later in uh, uh, 597 B.C., when King Jehoiakim uh, rebelled against Babylon, and then he refused to pay any more tribute money uh, to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar came, and he conquered Jerusalem a second time. And he made Zedekiah a vassal king of his in, Jeru in Jerusalem. Zedekiah was the final king of Judah before Babylon was conquered a third time. Initially, Zedekiah was a very obedient uh, vassal king to Babylon. He paid tribute. He was uh, submissive to the Babylonian uh, empire. Uh, but now as we come into chapter 27, he's got this crazy idea that he can rebel against the Babylonian empire and be successful in setting Judah free. There are also a handful of nations that immediately surround Judah that also get the same idea. Probably Zedekiah sent out emissaries to the kings of all of these empires and said, I think this is our chance to break off the Babylonian yoke. We've got a chance to rebel against Babylon and be successful. The reason that they thought that they could be successful in doing that is that the Babylonian empire was going through some problems. Uh, they were having problems maintaining law and order in another part of their empire. There was also an internal revolution that was ultimately put down that occurred within the empire itself. And so it looked like 
Babylon is vulnerable. This is our perfect time now uh, to rebel against them. And here we are. We're in Judah and these other nations. We're on the far western reaches of the Babylonian Empire. They won't pay us uh, any uh, attention. And so this is the, sets the stage for chapter 27. And uh, uh, Zedekiah here in Judah, all of these ambassadors from these surrounding nations there uh, to plan this revolt against Babylonian uh, rule. The uh, false prophets among the, the children of Judah, uh, they got wind of this and they became very, very excited. And so they began to prophesy that this attempt to overthrow Babylonian rule was going to be successful, despite the fact that God had already been speaking now for decades to the southern kingdom of Judah that Babylon is not your enemy. I am your enemy. You are going to be conquered by, uh, by them. But they came in with their prophecies contrary uh, to all of that and uh, with the idea that, no, we can, we can do this and we can have this circumstance turn around without repenting of our sin. And God was, you know, basically telling them, no, you're not going to escape my judgment through the Babylonians, through your craftiness or through your cleverness. The only way you're going to escape it is through your repentance that they weren't willing uh, to do. The third and final conquest occurred in 587. Uh, ten years later, and, and then when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he was very upset. Uh, he said, I'm not doing this a fourth time. And that's why he came in and just leveled uh, everything. So here, uh, chapter 27, in the beginning of the year, uh, reign of uh, Jehoiakim, the son of uh, Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to uh, Jeremiah from uh, uh, from the Lord, saying, "Thus you shall, uh, thus says the Lord to me, make." And here's God speaking to Jeremiah: "Make for yourself bonds and yokes, and put them on your neck." So, of course, a yoke in those days you would yoke oxen or animals in order to, uh, uh, you know, operate to plow the fields and so forth. So it was a symbol of bondage, and it was a symbol of the fact that Judah was going to in, go into uh, bondage and into captivity to the Babylonians because of this goofy idea that they have of rebelling against the Babylonian empire. And so God tells him, make these bonds, make these yokes, and put them around your neck. So imagine, you put yourself in Jeremiah's place, and it's not easy to be a prophet. So he puts this thing together, and he walks out his front door, and he's got a yoke around his neck. And he's walking through Jerusalem. So what are people going to do? Uh, Jeremiah, do you, do you know you've got a yoke around your neck? And of course, it would gain the attention of all of the people, which is the whole reason for God using these kind of props that he does continually through the book of Jeremiah. So he comes out, he starts walking through the city. Everybody is going to notice it. Everybody's going to be buzzing uh, related to it, and they're going to want to know, why in the world are you doing this, Jeremiah, so that gaining the attention of the people, God can then speak the prophecy to them. Half the problem probably for God is gaining people's attention. Delivering the message is easy after that, but he had his ways of doing that, and that was the intent of all of this. And, and then, so put these, uh, the bonds and the yokes, put them on your neck, and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the, Am the, king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah." And so he said, make up kind of a small version of these yokes for each of these ambassadors that have come from each of these nations and give it to these ambassadors so they can take it home to their kings with the following message, and command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth uh, the, uh, the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And so he's letting them know, if you want to defy this, this is who you're up against, me, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And now I have given all of these lands 
into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. My servant, he is doing my will. And not only the land, but he's, I've given him everything that's in the lands, even the beasts of the field, I have also given him to serve, so that all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall uh, make him serve them. Fascinating prophecy in verse 7. I don't know you, how, much, how much excellence can you jam into one verse uh, uh, prophetically. He declares here in this prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule, and the Babylonian empire is going to dominate uh, through the life of Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his grandson. And you remember when you get into the book of Daniel where Belshazzar, who is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one that's having the big party and drinking wine from all of the holy vessels that were captured from Babylon, and Mini Mini Tekel Eupharsin is written uh, upon the wall. Daniel is brought in in order to interpret all of that. And so it's exactly as God, uh, it occurs exactly at the term of the empire as God lays it out here through Jeremiah, and then the description that the Babylonian empire would then give way to other, another empire that would uh, generate and spawn other great kings as well. And we know that the Babylonian empire was ultimately overthrown by the Medes and the, per, uh, and the Persians, establishing the Medo-Persian uh, empire. So this is the warning that's being uh, given here, and it shall be that the nations and the kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put uh, its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that's why I've given you a yoke, that that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I have consumed them by His hand. In other words, you need to come under the yoke of Babylon uh, in order for you not to be judged by me. For they, uh, therefore, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers, who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. And all of the false prophets were saying, no, you're going to be successful in rebelling against Babylon. You'll overthrow them and, and, uh, you're, and giving them the positive message in contrast to this horrible negative thing that Jeremiah uh, was saying. And he warned that these prophets who were telling you that you're not going to serve the king of Babylon, they prophesy a lie to you and the end result of listening to them is going to be that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will uh, perish. But the nations that will bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and choose to serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell it uh, in it. In other words, God says to them, listen, you don't have a choice over whether Babylon is going to make you a part of their empire. I have determined that. The only choice that you have is to submit to it and then be, become a vassal state and, and then be able to stay in the land or rebel against uh, Babylon and then be utterly wiped out and displaced from your land and taken into uh, Babylonian captivity. And I also spoke then the same message uh, Jeremiah said. I spoke it uh, to all of these ambassadors. Now I spoke it to King Zedekiah himself, according to all these words, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die? In other words, this is a life and death decision that you're making, and you're making it not just for yourself, but for your nation. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, um, 
you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, says the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy uh, to you. And also I spoke then to the priests and to all of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. When Babylon conquered uh, Judah and conquered Jerusalem the first time, they did what any conquering nation did in those days. They headed into the treasury. They took all of the wealth. They headed into the uh, temple, and here is the temple with uh, so much wealth, so much gold. They stripped all of it that was valuable uh, away from that, and they left only behind the larger kind of articles that were, uh, you know, the bronze basin and the bronze la- laver that was laver that was out in the courtyard immediately outside of the temple because it was too big and too weighty to carry away that first time. And and so they stripped away these things from the temple, and the prophets were declaring now that uh, all of these things that Babylon has stolen from the temple, they're going to be restored, they're going to be brought back from Babylon, and Jeremiah said, no, that's nonsense, they're prophesying uh, a lie to you. Verse 17, do not listen to them, serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city of Jerusalem be laid waste? But if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels that are left in the house of, uh, of the Lord, uh, in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem, will not go to Babylon. Jeremiah said, no, 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 no. It is the, the option that is on the table is not that G- Babylon is going to somehow falter in return all of those valuables and uh, religious uh, relics and, and, and furnishings back to Jerusalem. That's not what's going to happen. You shouldn't put any hope in that. What you ought to hope for, and the best that you can hope for, is that you will not rebel against Babylon, have Babylon come in again, and then take everything that remains in Jerusalem associated with the temple. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in later, that's exactly what he did. He stripped everything away. For thus says uh, the Lord uh, uh, of hosts, verse 19, concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city. These were all furnishings associated with the temple, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take. Uh, when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from uh, Jerusalem to Babylon, and all of the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall all be carried away to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. And then uh, I will bring them up and restore them uh, to this place. And so God infuses some hope here in the situation, chapter 28, in our remaining minutes. And it happened in the same year, in the context of all of these events, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, he spoke to me uh, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying… So here you have this man. He is a false prophet, and he deliberately confronts Jeremiah in a very public place. This is all intentional, to confront Jeremiah as a false prophet uh, and confronts him in the holiest place in Jerusalem in the area of the temple. And he declared then to Jeremiah, and the nation is there being an audience to all of this, thus uh, says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, and within two full years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
took away from this place and carried to, Bab- uh, to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who had been taken captive, with all of the captives of Judah who went into to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And so, this is his prophecy. He makes it public, and it is diametrically opposed to the message that Jeremiah is preaching and that God has given uh, to him. So, you have kind of like a power encounter going here in terms of uh, of prophets and, and prophecies. And so, Jeremiah, there he is. He's standing there. I mean, he doesn't know that this is going to come down, but he's there. And so, here is his response to all of it. The prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and the presence of all of the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. Uh, The Lord do so, and the Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who were carried away captive from Babylon to this place. There's probably some sanctified sarcasm here in Jeremiah. Remember the word amen, it means two things. It can mean that's the truth, and it can also mean so be it. So, Jeremiah listens to this false prophecy that's contrary to what he's been prophesying, and he says, so be it. Uh, It's almost as if he's saying, I could wish that that would be true, but it's not going uh, to be true. And so, he continues on now uh, to uh, counter this false prophecy in verse 7, nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all of the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and many kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. For as the prophet, uh, as for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, and the prophet, w- uh, uh, the prophet will then be known as one uh, through whom the Lord, has, uh, the one whom the Lord has truly sent. The test for a prophet is not that we can say, thus saith the Lord. The test is not how dramatic someone can be as Hananiah is being here, or how forceful they can be, or how positive their message is. And this is probably a very dramatic scene that Jeremiah is in the middle of. His, his, his deal here is what the test of a prophet is whether the prophecy comes to pass or not. And Jeremiah is not threatened one bit by what this guy is saying. And then Hananiah the prophet, again, he, has a, 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 he would have had a future in theater if he had ever contemplated it. Very dramatic fellow. Uh, he then took, took the yoke off of the prophet Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. I mean, imagine the chutzpah here to go to Jeremiah, take the yoke off, and he's basically saying, he's breaking the yoke, and he's basically saying the prophecy from God that you're prophesying that we should come under the yoke of Babylon, all of that is nonsense, and he, and he gives the message this uh, physical kind of uh, expression as well. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of the people saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within the space of two full years. And then uh, Jeremiah went his way. (laughs) What are you going to say to that? So here's the guy. He says his thing. Jeremiah says his thing. And, you know, I don't know what you're like, but I can, in a confrontational situation like that, if I'm in that place and I'm in Jeremiah's shoes, I, I like things to be settled quickly. A, a little bit of lightning would uh, take care of it right away and uh, establish who the person is that's right in the situation and so forth. That's not what happens. And sometimes you get in a thing like this and you just got to turn around and walk away, and then in God's time, He will reveal who was right, who was wrong, 
who was representing God properly and who wasn't. And so uh, there's really tremendous dignity in him, a tremendous confidence that's uh, reflected in his life and handling it this way. He knew he was right. Uh, no more words were going to do any good. And uh, he held on to, you know, he's a distinguished man. He's an older man at this point. And he turns and he walks out. He can't say any more than he said. Now the people just have to uh, do what it is that they're going to do. The problem here and what the people ought to have understood and what we need to understand as we close here tonight is that when uh, Hananiah comes up against the prophecies of Jeremiah, when we look at it, it looks like, okay, it's prophet against prophet. It looks like to the naked eye, this is a tie. Uh, you know, nobody can understand the one to be more true than the other. But they should have. They should have. Because Jeremiah's prophecies were in line with the revelation of God in the law of Moses when God spoke to the children of Israel in His law and said, if you obey me, this is how I will bless you. If you disobey me, this is how I will judge you. And the land was completely filled with disobedience. And Jeremiah's prophecy is absolutely consistent with the Word of God and what it declared about the judgment that God had promised He would mete out upon them if they ever turned in that direction. Again, the importance Never, ever receive uh, something as a word from God or a man or a woman as a prophet or a prophetess when they encourage people, whether saved or unsaved, uh, to continue in their ungodly condition and in their sin. God never has any part in that kind of thing. This was a nation and, a, li and, and, and a, a people and individual lives who what they needed to hear was not an encouragement. Uh, what they needed to hear was a call uh, to repentance, and uh, Jeremiah spoke it faithfully uh, to them. And so the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah. The, and and I, the reason I say that is that in the nation that we uh, live in, uh, Do I want to go here again? But I, <laughs> the, there's a lot of sin in this country, and there's a lot of sin in this world. You look at what's happening, and we look, and I mean, and I think today even the average Christian looks at the United States of America and says, listen, our most of a critical thing that needs to happen here is we've got to just keep this economy going and keep this thing going and keep that Fed's got to keep the rate in the right place and all of this, and we're all quite busy trying to keep food on the table and all of this. I understand all of that. But when you stop and you scratch right under the surface of the sheer amount of sin the availability of sin, the, the addiction to sin, what people are involved in, the lack of shame, the lack of, of uh, the waning of righteousness and morality and so forth that is disappearing by the year, by the generation. It's a, the nation that we live in is a nation that is, uh, it, it, and we look and we say, well, it's distinct from the rest of the world in terms of a democracy, and we want to export democracy. We are almost, despite our Judeo-Christian uh, heritage, becoming exactly like the rest of the world in terms of, not in terms of what we say or what we profess, but in terms of the life that we actually live. And there is going to come a time well, I don't know if it will be the role of the pastor. He will do it in his own kind of way. But what we will desperately need, and need even today in this nation, and, and I've contended this for years, is we need uh, prophets again. Not merely a word of prophecy or a prophecy, but men and women who operate in this gift and will stand against the culture, against the trend into sin, will speak against it in the way that Jeremiah does, and to call a nation 
to repentance. And a pastor has a role in that, but the audience, the influence is, is limited by virtue of the size of the congregation. I'm talking about someone who is recognized in a nation that is a voice of God speaking in a prophetic gift, a calling to this nation. And when they do that, that that person will have the support of our hearts and our prayers, and we will stand by that person rather than all of this thing that's going on today, trying to make Christians in the world comfortable in their sin with some kind of a sermonette on Sunday morning when the entire world is on, not only on fire around us, but is morally going down the toilet. And so these are things that are important for us to speak about. There is so much pressure upon leaders to only speak what is positive, only speak what is nice, only speak what will lift people up, never anything negative, never anything exhortive, because if you don't do that, then you're not going to be able to compete with the voices of the world, and you will drive away the remaining people that even come to church now. And that is a very strong influence within the body of Christ in the United States of America. And it's important to realize as you look at it, what we need, what I need, is I need to hear the Word of God in its totality, all of it in its exhortation, edification, and comfort, all three of those. I don't need leaders, and I have leaders within my life who will tell me how to get comfortable in this current age or how to take my life as a Christian and bring it down into where I'm just looking out for myself now and trying to get through this pilgrimage rather than being an influence for God so that I can leave, go to my car, feel good about myself, and feel good about the world that I'm living in for a moment, even though it's not even a Band-Aid upon the problems that are in my own life and the problems that are in our nation and in the world. What's happening here in Judah is happening not to the same degree, but it is approaching it in the United States of America. And so the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from uh, the neck of the prophet Jeremiah. After this big show, he catches him privately. And the Lord told him, you go and tell Hananiah, saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood but you have made in their place yokes of iron. Hananiah, you have just made things worse, uh, buckaroo, because you're encouraging them to rebel in your prophecies against Babylon, and it's only going to make things worse for them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beasts of the field also. And then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, uh, the Lord. Uh, here's the word of the Lord to you. The Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. And therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. And so Hananiah died the same year in the seventh month, within two months of Jeremiah delivering this uh, prophecy. And so, a sober thing to speak for God, especially in a moment in human history where the stakes were as high as they were concerning Judah. And it is the same uh, sobriety with which any of us uh, speak concerning the Lord and the things of the Lord in this age. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer.